0: My name is Razak Gurna and uh, my novel is Afterlives.
1: In 2021, Razak Gurna was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in recognition of his decades of work focusing on colonialism and the refugee experience. His newest novel, Afterlives, was originally published in the UK in 2020 by Bloomsbury, and it has finally been released here in the United States by Riverhead Books. I recently spoke with Gurna about the 20th century German colonization of Tanzania, his publishing process, and the power of language. I'm Beth Goulet, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. Your novel, Afterlives, it's a multi-generational saga, an intersection of lives in Tanzania. And it takes place from the 1880s to the 1960s, you know, with the country moving from German rule to British rule. And when we learn about colonization, at least in my classes, our studies usually do not include the German colonization of East Africa. So I'm wondering, can you give us a brief description of your novel and perhaps offer a look at this part of history that's not perhaps as well-known?
0: Well, it is obviously well-known to us because happening nearby there. And I grew up with stories of... uh, of that as well as other stories, but I, I knew about it from what people were saying, but also realized that it was not something that's well known about, certainly very little known about in, um, in Europe. Scholars know about it, of course, people, historians and so on, but in a popular sense, it's not something people know a lot about. When they think of the 1914, 1918 war, uh, they think of it as happening mostly in Europe, Possibly a little bit in the Middle East because of the involvement of the Ottoman Empire in that war, but they don't think of Africa. But there are multiple places where there was conflict and war: ruins, and, of course, our part of the world and in Togo as well, because these were the German colonies. Now I don't know why that particular dimension of the colonial history is not known about. That is to say, the German colonial empire in Africa. Partly, I suppose, it could be because it all ended very quickly, 30 years, and then it was gone because the colonies were taken away from the German state. And partly, I suppose, when you think of Germany, you think of much more horrific things that happened later on in the 1930s. And the same is true for Germans themselves, of course, when they contemplate themselves, what they, I think, have to deal with, most importantly, in the foreground of, them, of their minds must be the horrific events that were done in their name, or indeed were done by them, amongst them. So, in this respect, the history of German colonialism just receded partly because the magnitude of the conflict in Europe in 1914-18 was so much nearer the minds of European people because the people from your town and your village and your city were dying. don't know anything about those Africans. And in the case of Germany, because they were kind of like overcome by the much greater horrors that came later. Where there are stories, which are very few, that are told about that location, they're often kind of like whimsical. I don't know if you know a film called The African Queen, which was Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn, I think. It's nothing to do with how the war is affecting the people of that area. Hundreds and thousands of whom died. Both of violence as well as starvation. So it's as if it's just simply a location for, for other kinds of things, not what really happened. Anyway, all these are good reasons to write about it, because you know, to not just to say here's something we didn't know about, but because we deserve to know, better to know than not to know, in every case. And here's something both for the people in our part of the world there, but also for people who are shall we say, the people for whom the consequences of colonialism are still being worked out, still being understood. I mean, in Europe and perhaps in the rest of the world too. Anyway, so that's the reason for doing it and that's what it's about. But then a novel is not just about one thing. There are always a lot of other things that are going on, uh, about uh, understanding something about how people live with conflict uh, and continue their lives, uh, how people retrieve something from conflict and make their lives anew and how we learn to to understand things that have happened. I was also very interested in the the way that disease tormented people and also what difference these new forms of medical knowledge, what a difference that made. It also made a difference to to Europe itself of course because this was a period of great progress in medicine, germ theory for example, penicillin, all of these were new discoveries in you know? Europe. And in a way, in a kind of an unintended way, colonized people also benefited from this. It was not, of course, the intention of the colonizers to say we will take this new medical knowledge to them to make their lives better. But in the way of these things, they couldn't not. Doctors are like that. They have no choice. They see somebody who's ill, they treat them.
1: I listened to the interview you gave to NPR Scott Simon, and when he asked about some of the characters, he began with Khalifa, but in your answer, you began with Hamza who you felt was the central character. So I was surprised when we met the central character in part two and not until page 55. You said in that interview that Hamza's was the core story. So did you begin with Hamza and then create other characters as you anticipated they would eventually come into his orbit? How was that process for you?
0: When I began writing, I began with that part where Hamza returns to the town. So in a way, my focus was on Hamza at that point. So I knew he was coming back, to the town from the war. And I knew that he was coming back wounded. And at some point, in the, my original thinking, at some point, he was going to tell the story of that war to Afia, who I knew he would meet. So I already had those two figures in my mind. That he would return, that somehow or the other, he would find a way of relocating himself in the town. And that somehow or the other, he would meet this other person, this woman who is also herself has gone through a traumatic experience. So the two of them, through their encounters, through their courtship, tell each other their histories. This was how I envisaged it originally. But then I thought, no, I don't want to do it like that. I want to do it going forward. I want to do it so that we actually are there when these events happen to them and know about them before they meet each other. So that's then took a different shape. The shape had to be that we see Afia as a child and we see Hamza actually joining up and going through the experience of war and so on and so forth. Khalifa was to be the the link, the place of safety, if you like, for both of these. So it's Khalifa who rescues Afia from the family that is mistreating her. And it's Khalifa who is the one who Hamza ends up uh, working with and who offers him shelter, et cetera, et cetera. So he becomes crucial, important to both bringing the two together but also in kind of guiding them and hovering over them, them and making sure that in his own way that they are kind of looked after. Ilias occurred to me in the middle of writing of this because I read the story of Bayoume, the real man around whom I created that figure of Ilias, and it seemed a very interesting possibility to make him a brother of Afia. So I did that. So it began to work quite well as I was thinking it through. And therefore it was possible then to go back a little earlier and to introduce Elias a little earlier. And you know, this is how writing works. me. So, you know, you do something, then you undo it, and then you do it again, and then undo it, until eventually you have the, the right shape, the right form. So that's an account. So it's not that I would say Hamza is the core, They all three perform different functions, or four really. Perform different functions and are kind of working together. But the most, I think the most, the strongest story is Hamza's story because of that war experience.
1: There were a couple of instances that surprised me in the book when it came to marriage proposals with both Yamiya and Afia. I was surprised at the reticence of the fathers, and I realized that Khalifa, you know, wasn't exactly Afia's father. But I was surprised. You know, of the agency or voice that the young women had in the matter. Was this common?
0: You mean you thought they wouldn't have any voice?
1: Yes. I thought that they would be told who to marry and they would have no say in the matter.
0: No, that's not so. Of course, you could have a tyrannical parent's tyrannical father or mother who might say, OK, we found a husband for you. or we found a wife for you. And it's quite possible that you might be so respectful of your parents that you would not say, But actually, no, I don't like the look of her. Because there would be complicated reasons for making the choices. Sometimes it's to do with keeping families together, because we have always married from that family, that kind of thing. Depends. Or sometimes it could be to do with uh, protecting property. Sometimes it could be because the two, the mothers of the woman and the mother of the man have been oldest friends ever, and it's always been their dream to marry their offspring to each other, you know? Mm -hmm all sorts of things like that. But ultimately, unless the parents are really tyrannical, then I think if one or the other says actually no, the answer is no, things don't go ahead beyond that. It's not so usual for people to find each other or it didn't used to be, things have changed a lot. But in my use, it probably wouldn't have been quite so easy for people to find each other like that and and go out together and this kind of thing because quite a lot of activities are single, Gender as well, you know, men meet with men, women meet with women. And to do otherwise is to tarnish your reputation beyond belief, particularly for the woman, of course. But people are not forced to marry. It really is, in the end, up to the individuals. And also, the other good thing, actually, divorce is not complicated. So if it turns out that it's not right, because, for example, the man is violent, or quite a lot of men divorce their wives because they say, She's barren, she's not giving me children, which is cruel, but you know. So divorce is relatively easy for both men and women. So that actually is a kind of uh what what is it you say? Uh, something valve escape safety valve. It really does mean that if if the union is wrong, then it can be quickly dissolved.
1: There were a couple of books given to Hamza in the novel, The Schiller and the Hein. Can you talk to me about the significance of these works?
0: Well, Schiller, of course, the poet, and he becomes useful because of the the officer's attachment to his work. And also a a little thing that I put in there, which um, not everybody perhaps will realise, but he mentions his hometown, the officer mentions his own hometown. And it is indeed Schiller's hometown, although I don't say that. So there are other ways in which Schiller means something to the officer. And of course, Schiller is a, a highly renowned German poet, so it wouldn't be surprising anyway for him to love Schiller. And it's Schiller that he chooses to make that rather frivolous, at first anyway, that frivolous joke, I'm going to teach this guy to, to read Schiller. So it's a burst he makes to his fellow officers. So, but because Schiller is, it's like saying in English, we well, teaching somebody English, and saying, I'm going to teach him to read Shakespeare. It's like that. It's nothing complicated in that sense except that obviously Shakespeare is not easy to read if you're just learning English. And the same will be true of German, if you're reading Schiller, if you're just learning German. But it's useful because indeed he becomes a good student and does learn to read Schiller. And Schiller then becomes part of the romance, the translation of the poem, and so on and so forth. So it all kind of worked out in that way. Heiner, because Heiner's whole work is about, no, well, amongst other things, a critique of the tyrannical state. So the fact that the pastor reads Heine, because the pastor, Heine, also wrote about religion, that book that Frau Pastor gives to Hamza is indeed a book about philosophy of religion. And so the pastor is interested in Heine, but Heine is is very critical of religion and its hold, as it were, on people, which gives a clue about the way the pastor is divided that he's actually reading Heiner and values Heiner's work, even though he's himself a practicing priest. So those are the reasons why you have those two books in there, as kind of uh, elaborations of the conflict that the colonizers themselves have with their program, with their ideologies.
1: So Afterlives was first published in 2020 by Bloomsbury, and now it's, it was published by Riverhead Books in the United States. Is the book that just came out in the United States, is it the same as the book that was published in 2020, or has it changed at all for this publication?
0: There may be the odd editorial tweak here and there, but nothing changed. I mean, you know, there there may be the odd thing, but it's the same book.
1: So your books have not been readily available in the United States, and and now you're having to talk about a book that you not only wrote, but published a few years ago. Is that disconcerting at all? I mean, have you moved on to another project before you were named the Nobel laureate, and now you you find yourself having to backtrack?
0: I was in the middle of something else, but I haven't been able to even look at it since October 2021. So it's just sitting there somewhere. When things calm down, I'll go back to it. And if it's, it's still alive, then we'll see how we go on from there. <laughs> but that's not a problem. It's just now we're going through this and uh, it's it's great and it has to be done. So,
1: I'd like to talk about language because you write your books in English, though your first language is Swahili. Some of your characters learn to read and write in German. Afia learned to read and write and was punished for it. So talk to me about the power of language and, and how that power changes with, you know, with the more language or the more knowledge of language that you can acquire.
0: Well, uh, la- language is in the service of something. I mean, in the sense of learning German, in the case of Hamza, is part of the process of learning to understand also something about Germans or German or poetry. In the case of Afia, learning to read and write, completely transgressive act because she's a woman, she's a girl. And girls were not sent to school. And for a girl to learn to write is somehow to break something of the authority of the holder of the word that is that is men. And in not not anymore, of course, not in many places anyway, anymore. You remember a few years ago there was that young woman of whose name I forget now from Afghanistan who was slashed across the face and she was given the peace prize, I believe remember her? Malala. Malala, that's it. And her crime was she could write. So it's still the case that this is such a transgressive act simply because of gender, that women should not be able to write because if they're able to write, they have agency. So their language is performing a different purpose, or writing is performing a different function altogether from learning to, to read and write in German, which is both a kind of frivolity on the part of the officer but it is also part of the the acculturation that occurs as a result of colonialism in some cases forced language acquisition because without that language you cannot operate in this colonial culture you cannot go to school you cannot work or you can only do certain kind of manual work you cannot progress as well up the scale of work so there is also an ideal side to this, that knowing a language actually enables articulation of mood, of ideas, communication, etc. So it's still very simple. Language is essential to be human, is to be able to use language.
1: I'd like to ask about characters because I, I keep thinking about the woodworker Muse Soleimani. So the worst thing he could ever say about someone is that he didn't believe them. I keep thinking about him and his character. Is it ever difficult for you to leave your characters behind after you finish a book?
0: No, no, not at all <laughs> No, well, no, they, they have their own existence They just go on living their lives I don't think about them anymore Sometimes I forget them And, and somebody reminds me, and say Such and such, and I see where was that? Sometimes I forget which book this person was in Because they have their own lives And, you know, they work for me in the process of Doing whatever it is that we have to do In the book together And then after that I leave them alone they carry on living Sometimes I go back to them write about them again
1: well I guess I'll just keep him right here <laughs> if you ever miss him I'll, I'll keep him right here for you,
0: <laughs> you. I'm glad you like.
1: Him. well Abdul Razak Gurna the book is Afterlives thank you so much for joining us
0: it's been a pleasure
1: Abdul Razak Gurna author of the novel Afterlives which was published by Riverhead Books thanks for joining us for Marginalia if you enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens. Our producer is Haley Krausen. And our marketing assistant is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia. And for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.